Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel-san, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to a grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hello, guys and gals. Welcome, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 117. Today's episode is called The True Master Conspiracy Theory. Now, I know when I do Miyagi Mornings, I generally profess to be non-political. This one's going to break the rules, but probably not as much as most people will assert if they're offended by it. Because, to me, political means vote for my side. Hey, here's what we need to be doing to make change. And, and this is actually why you're not going to make change. Um, the, what I call the, the, the true master conspiracy, maybe even the grandmaster conspiracy. And uh, I want to start out with something on conspiracy theories in general. I am not a conspiracy guy. I know some of you may have found me recently and like, oh, dude, he's the survival podcast guy. He must be into all the conspiracies. And that's been something that's plagued me over the years, over and over, because I get people that, like, they just found me, and they want to tell me about every conspiracy theory under the th sun, and did you know this, and have you talked about that? It's like, dude, that's not what I do. That's not what I do. I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. Um, and so the first question I have for somebody when they want to discuss a conspiracy theory, especially in real life, you know, you're having a beer or something, is before we do this, tell me a conspiracy theory you don't believe. Tell me one you don't believe. Like, and if the person said, like, well, I know we landed on the moon. Oh, okay. Now we can talk about your conspiracy theory. And it, that's just a random one I selected. But, um, and if a person gives me an answer like, well, I, I actually think there's truth in most conspiracy theories, but uh, here's, here's some theories that I think that the, the, you know, the, 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 the uh, community around it have just gone out in left field, loon land. Okay, we can talk. The person who can't come up with one they disagree with, I don't want to have a conversation with because I know I'm not dealing with a rational, sane person because there's some la-la land crap out there. Now, here's what I think. It's actually the second one, the second answer I gave you, and it's so seldom and so rare that I get that answer from somebody. But that's where I'm at. I think most conspiracy theories, most, not all, have some grounding in facts. They have some grounding in facts. Like, for instance, I, you know, the Kennedy assassination. This guy Oswald just was pissed off at you know society and was a, a silent communist and climbed up in a book depository and shot JFK and and a closed book on the whole thing and it's just the way it happened and don't worry about it. No, I don't I don't buy that. However, the whole you know there was a shooter on the grassy knoll shit and all like because there's no way anybody could have made that shot. You want to know who could have made that shot? Me. It wouldn't even have been that hard. Now, having it exactly take the weird course that the bullets did, I mean, that's just freak and could or could not have happened. There could be some validity there. I'll get to my one of my big problems with it in just a second, so calm down. But this whole notion that it was difficult, and I remember uh, Jesse Ventura had this conspiracy theory thing, and he went up in a boom lift, and he was talking about how hard it would have been to hold a rifle steady. He wasn't in a boom lift, moron. He was in a freaking brick-and-mortar building. Go to Dealey Plaza, look at where the window is, look where the car was, there's still an X on the ground. If you can't make that shot, you got no business picking up a rifle in the first place. It wouldn't have been that hard, the car wasn't moving quickly. Come on, guys. 
right? So just because I don't trust the mainstream doesn't mean I buy into all of the peripheral bullshit. And this is what I think generally happens. It, this is why I think that most of society, people even consider they consider themselves not woke, we don't use that word here, awake, are being used as useful idiots by the people that are actually in power. So what happens is there's some people out there that are critical thinkers and they look at one of these things that's, you know, you know, where they're like, there's no way the COVID virus came from a laboratory. It's impossible. And anybody that's a critical thinker goes, wait a minute, there's a, a lab in Wuhan that does research on bat coronaviruses just down the street from the wet market where supposedly somebody ate a bat where they don't sell bats and that, that lab was doing gain-of-function research on coronaviruses, and now we have a new... No like, okay, maybe it didn't happen, but we, before you say it's impossible, you know, only weeks into this thing, maybe we need to check this out. Sane, logical, rational person. Enter in, as soon as that happens, and a natural occurrence will, will, will enter in the complete batshit crazy. Man, I'll tell you what it is. They're spreading it through 5G, man. It's a bioweapon. Huawei's in on it. And then, boom. And then what happens is the people in power actually feed information into these groups. And it's, you know, today it's done with the Internet. In the past it was done through other mediums. And they actually foment the crazy component because it buries the truth of the rational. And that, that's how I look at most conspiracy theories. So I'm not your guy that believes in all the conspiracy theories. However, I think the, the larger conspiracy theory is, well, it starts out with a belief. It starts out with a belief that when you tell somebody, like, well, this is what's happening, they say, do you know how many people would have to be in on that man? Well, the answer is not very many, but a lot of people could be involved without, without being in on it. Like you. You could be involved without being in on it. The way I, I look at that is, let's just say that in 2018, or let's say 2019, but before COVID was a thing, early 2019, I had said to you, the mass establishment will have the world convinced within six months that just to go outside, even if they're perfectly healthy, they need to wear a mask to protect other people. And they'll, they'll do it so effectively that people will scream and shout at people and claim they're murdering people if they don't have a mask on, walking around outside in the woods. You just said, dude, you are a conspiracy theorist, you're nuts, you're crazy, there's no way that could happen. And what if I told you this will be in spite of the fact that here is a counter-argument, here's 12 studies done across seven 70 years, the first in 1947, the last in 2019, this current year, where this theory that we can prevent the spread of viral diseases through the use of surgical masks on mass masking was proven that it doesn't work. There's 12 gold standard studies that says this doesn't work, and they will tell people it doesn't work in the beginning, then they will tell people a few weeks later that it does, and you're irresponsible if you don't do it, and it will culminate with people wearing two and three masks. You just said, okay, well, now you're just totally out of, out of your mind. Do you know how many people would have to be in on it for that to happen? Not many. Not many. All you need is just, like, complete and total control of industry and the media cycle and the university system. If you have that, you don't need a lot of people to be in on it. And that's the grand conspiracy. That's the master conspiracy theory. And most people in the world believe in it. That's why it's the master conspiracy theory. Here's what I mean. Everything I'm about to tell you from this point forward is not an opinion, it's a fact. 
every single major university, and including most um, you know, minor universities and public universities, are largely funded by the extremely wealthy and by megacorporations. And these entities do not fund these universities through scholarships. Like That's done through different mechanisms. I'm talking about money that goes directly to the institution from the donor. Here, you need to build a new science lab. I'll pay for it. That type of thing. Here, I'll fund this department. That type of thing. This is a fact. You can check for yourself. Every major university is largely funded in its operations and its expansions through that mechanism. Okay? Number two, every major media outlet, every major, major media outlet is controlled by a very small number of people, and this is why you can turn your TV set on, and it's local 7, Florida, you know, West Coast, and Dallas, Fort Worth, Fox 4, and California this, and, and, and Wyoming that, and hear the exact same news, even though it's supposed to be coming from your local independent news network. Because they have complete mass control. There's about six companies that control 98% of the media that's consumed in the United States, including the media that you think is diametrically opposed to each other. They're controlled by the same people. Again, this is not my opinion. I defy you to prove that to be incorrect. This is not the, the grand conspiracy yet either. This is just the facts behind it, right? So we've got major corporations and banks funding the universities and thereby controlling them. And in the same token, we have what funds the media. What funds the media? Major corporations through sponsorships and advertisements. That's why every third ad is a freaking drug commercial now, right? And some chick is like dancing through a field while she has stage five metastatic breast cancer because she'll live longer like one day. She's happy about it. That's why, because they fund through that, okay? Now, the next fact, again, this is factual. This is indisputable fact. All these major corporations take top brass, C-level officers, director-level personnel. These are people already multimillionaires inside these corporations before this process begins. And they send them into government, and they send them as lobbyists. Okay, They employ them as lobbyists, and they get them into governmental positions. And so an example of this would be you'll have somebody come out of Monsanto, which is now bare and it's merged together, and they'll go serve a cabinet position in agriculture or pharmaceutical, right? Now, what does Bear want? Bear wants three things mainly. It wants to sell more chemicals, more fertilizers, and more drugs. That's the three things that Bear exists solely to. In fact, they would be in violation of investor law if they didn't see to that as their primary goals. It's called fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. That's what they want. So they don't send those people there out of a sense of civic duty. They send them there. doesn't have to be a conspiracy. You don't have to be in on it because they want to sell more chemicals, more seed, and more drugs. That's why they go there. So they go and they serve in a high-level government bureaucratic position for a few years, at which time they leave and they go back to bear. Or they go into a position as a lobbyist, and then they go back to bear, and they keep going back and forth and through and around. It's called the revolving door. This is not disputed. Everybody that's paid six seconds of, of, of attention to this knows this to be the case. And every major industry and every major company and every major industry plays this game. This is how this game is played. This is what, and see what happens is you'll see, well, like so and so from Purdue was promoted to like, you know, the Agricultural Commission or something by Trump. 
And he's really not much different than the guy that Obama appointed. And he won't be much. Neither of those will be much different than the guy that that, that uh, Biden will uh, uh, appoint. And it won't be much different than the type of guy that will be appointed by whoever comes next. It will always be about the same kind of guy. And you, you, the problem is the illusion to the average person is from all the people in the world. The president or this department had selected this individual. No. There's maybe a dozen people that are even on a list, and anybody who's a good analyst could have told you who those dozen people would be. So you don't have to have a whole shitload of people in on it. All you have is you have this group that is seeking its own best interest. There's going to be two, three, four companies maximum at the top of the hierarchy. They're going to have the people that are eligible and have the pedigree and the backing and the money and the pull to even be on the list, and you're going to pick one of them. And it doesn't matter which one of the 12 or even 20 that is picked, it's going to serve that agenda. Now, again, nothing I've told you is disputable. It is all factual. So the grand conspiracy is that there exists in this in this society we live in complete and total control and domination of the media and broadcasting systems, complete and total control and domination of the banking systems and banking cartels, complete and total domination of the government being filled and infiltrated with bureaucrats and lobbyists that pay the politicians and have a revolving door in doing so. And complete and total domination of funding of the universities and so-called sciences, because when somebody gives you money, they tell you what they want in return for it. They don't say, here's money out of the purity of our hearts over at Monsanto, or at the purity of our hearts out of Arm & Hammer, or whatever. Please find out whatever the truth is. It's please find out that what we're doing is right. So there's all this power. All this power that exists in science, education, they even have the money and the power that they greatly influence K-12 curriculum. They decide what textbook your kid's going to have from the time he's in kindergarten till he graduates and either goes to university or trade school or does something else. They control all of that. They control the university system. They control the government bureaucracy. They control, control the educational programs within the universities. They control the media and broadcasting. They control all that. So what's the master conspiracy? That you're getting the truth from it. That you can trust the information. That you can indeed follow the science. That all this power exists, but it's not being used to further the agenda and goals of the few people that have it. It's being done for the common good of society. And really the only problem is there's two sides, and the two sides disagree with how it should happen. And that's, that's progressed from that was the belief in the 80s. And now the belief is the two sides, whatever side you pick, the other side is inherently completely freaking evil. And, and that that's all just a natural occurrence, too. That's just a natural occurrence. That, that whichever side you're on, the people that live across the street from you that chose the other side, they're inherently evil. And it doesn't have anything to do with all of this money that funds both sides and constantly moves things forward. That's the grand conspiracy. And the conspiracy is so broad that billions of people in this world believe in it. No one calls it a conspiracy theory, because it's what you're supposed to believe. Now, you know me, I'm big on solutions, so what do you do about it? Oh, well, the number one thing you can do about it is stop paying attention to it. Either don't pay attention to it at all, and go on and see to the needs in your own life, because you're not going to control those things. 
Stop believing that voting once every two or four years is going to change something, because it's not. Because the politicians don't have the power. There's an old saying, it came from the, the middle of the, of the 19th century, and I can't remember who did it, but it was a, some English gentleman. And he said, when one hand gives money to the other, the hand doing the giving is always in control because it is held higher in position when the money's handed over. So the money that funds all this and the bankers that are able to print the money at will, and I can't get into how that works today, but just understand, the banks in society can print money on their own. They don't need the Fed to print money, and the banks make the Fed up anyway. You believe the narrative that you're given. And I don't care if it comes out of the right speaker or the left speaker. If you believe either one, you're being controlled. So you either stop listening... Or, if you're going to pay attention so that you're aware of what's going on, like watching the weather radar so you know which type of storm is coming, whether it's going to be a hailstorm, a tornadic storm, a flooding storm, a windstorm, all of it, if you're going to do that, then you better know you're looking at weather radar and not to trust the guy talking behind the scenes telling you what to think about what you see on the radar. You have to trust your own eyes and your own instincts. You have to become immune to their systems of control. When you read a headline and you immediately get angry, you're being controlled. Even if you're right, you're being controlled. Because now your emotion is being controlled by a sentence on a screen or on a piece of paper. You're being controlled. That emotional response you have is only one of two. You can, I love this or I hate this. You don't think they know that? There's your grand conspiracy that people believe that the way that they respond actually affects what happens. The way you respond affects what happens for one person and one person only. You. So if you're going to look at it all, if you're going to pay attention to it at all, you have to make decisions for yourself. I'll finish with the COVID vaccine. So some of the best research coming out right now is when somebody gets COVID and has a bad case of it, has a bad outcome, whether that's death or serious illness, life-altering, etc., the thing that actually does the damage is the spike protein. It's the spike proteins on the virus. I'll give you a link to a video today where you can listen to a guy who's a vaccine researcher who's as pro-vaccine as it comes, but also believes science is a process, not an authority. Explain this to you. Not me, because you shouldn't believe me about that. Well, you should say, well, maybe Jack wouldn't lie to me, so he at least believes he's telling the truth, but he's not a vaccine researcher. Go listen to this guy. It's a PhD. Let him explain it to you. And then think about this. When you get that vaccine, you're getting like 50 billion of those spike proteins shoved into your body. Does that make sense? For a virus with a 99.9% survival rate, especially if you're at low or no risk as an individual, aren't you at, most people listening to me right now, you are at greater risk of dying today because you drive somewhere and get hit by a truck than you are at risk of dying of COVID over the next year. Are you going to not drive your car? Well, are you going to take an experimental vaccine? Oh, I'm sorry, an experimental gene therapy. Are you going to do that? I'm not telling you not to. I'm saying just maybe you should know these things before you do. Here's my last thing for you on COVID. I have been making an untrue statement about COVID uh, vaccines recently. I just learned this, and it, it seems to vet out that I was wrong. I've been saying that like Pfizer and Moderna and all are protected from being sued under the Vaccine Protection Act. Well, they are protected from being sued, but not under the Vaccine Protection Act. Yeah, it, it seems that the thing that you sign when you get the vaccine says that you are informed that it's an experimental therapy, 
and that you fully and accept all responsibility for taking it yourself. Meaning if you experience a vaccine injury, you have absolutely no recourse. You can't go to vaccine court because you have an injury from COVID. Let's say it again. You can't go to the vaccine court and you can't sue Moderna or Pfizer or J&J or whatever. Your only recourse will be to turn to the Attorney General of the United States and try to convince the Attorney General that serves the institution that tells you you need to get the vaccine, that there was malfeasance in making and distributing the vaccine in the first place. Good luck with that. See, now, the conspiracy theory is shouting down people that tell you that before you confirm it or deny it yourself through independent research. That's the conspiracy theory. Having a near do that can't be true. That can't. Maybe you should check into it. Maybe you should actually get the consent form. Maybe you should actually read it. Maybe it would actually help you. And then even if you decided to get the vaccine, you would know what it means when you say yes. That would be informed consent. The fact that most people that you tell this to will say that can't be right and will never even bother to do so before having something injected in their body That is the master conspiracy. That is the master mind control. That is how society is being controlled today by a few people with millions of people involved, billions of people believing it, but very few people actually, you know, in on it. Well, you can go back to sleep now. Don't worry. It'll be okay. I'm sure that your masters will take care of you. That's the grand conspiracy. I'll be back tomorrow with another one. Well, hello there, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 118, as I try to adjust the microphone here. Give me a second. Anyway, um, today's question is one that I occasionally see. It's never been a problem that I've experienced myself. Uh, it involves grass-fed meat, which I honestly prefer vastly over CAFO meat. And here's why. A cow is a bovine. A bovine is a ruminant. Ruminants are supposed to eat grass. They're not supposed to eat grain, ever. They didn't evolve to eat grain. Do you know how you know that? Because they don't in the wild. You will not show me a wild bovine persisting on a diet primarily made up of grain. Do you know why? They can't do it. They can't do it. There's no wild source of highly consumable edible grain that won't like kill the animal if it tries to live on it. In fact, if you try to feed a cow on nothing but grain long term, you'll kill it. All cows are grass-fed. What comes down to is how they're finished uh, is in general. Now, there are cows that are both grass-fed and grain-fed throughout most of their lives. But in general, farmers, ranchers, they don't like to buy shit. They don't have to. So they feed the cattle grass. And before the cattle's you know, quite finished off, what they do is they sell it off. They you know, take it to the sale barn. And it, uh, it goes and it gets finished at a CAFO where they stuff it full of grain. And that puts lots of fat and marbling in it. Um, it also changes the fat profile. It makes it largely unhealthy for human beings. I won't get into that today. But I'm just going to say I prefer grass-fed for, for that reason alone. Now, there are some people that will say that grass-fed beef has a, a funny taste, or some people use the, the, the phrase that I despise that is not a flavor. It's gamey. No, it, it tastes like a cow. The reason it tastes like a cow is because it's eating what a cow is supposed to eat. When you feed a cow corn, you change the flavor of the cow because the cow is now actually living in a toxic state. When you feed a cow corn and soy, you change the cow's biology in its in, in stomach, 
and how it digests food, and it begins to cause issues with the muscle, but that does, in fact, make it taste more tender to us and change the flavor profile. An animal tastes of what it eats. So let me read the question here, and, and I'm going to talk a little tiny bit about management of grass-fed beef, but I only know a little tiny bit. I'm going to pass that piece on to our expert council member that knows a ton about this, Darby Simpson, and hopefully he'll answer that. It'll be on a future episode, not of Miyagi Mornings, but the podcast at thesurvivalpodcast.com. But here's how the question came in. Why would the grass-fed meat I get be so tough? My wife and I are getting more grass-fed beef, but every cut we get lately is very tough. All the grass-fed in my area seems to have less marbling. Is it my cooking technique, or is it the meat? I cooked two ribeyes for the family, and we could not eat most of it. Okay, that's weird to me. I mean, like, the worst rib I ever had was fabulous. So, again, I'm going to speak to the meat here a little bit, but my instinct is this does have to do with your cooking. And if I could ask you a question right now, I'd be like, do you sin against meat and cook meat well done? Do you sin against meat and cook it well done? Because if you cook meat well done, that is the number one way you can take a great piece of meat and not only dry it out, but make it tough. The longer you cook a piece of meat, up to a point, the tougher it becomes. And then, it, if you cook it like long-term, like slow cooker or a brisket on a smoker, then it begins to tenderize as you break down the tissues and what I'm looking for, the, the collagen and things like that, right? Um, so if you're sinning against meat, I will never be able to fix your sin against meat, but I'll give you some options if you, you need to continue to sin against meat in just a second. There is another potential issue here that has nothing to do with the management of the cattle directly. Who's processing this and how are they doing it? When you slaughter a cow, there is what's called a hanging time. That meat needs to hang for a significant period of time. And I would ask, it sounds to me like you're not buying like a half beef or a quarter beef. You're buying individual cuts. Whoever you're buying this from, how long is that beef hung before it's sold off? Assuming you're not sending it to meat and overcooking it. And that's what your problem actually is. All right? I mean, that's, I'd ask that question because what you may need is a, is beef that goes through a different processor because that is incredibly important. That's incredibly important. Um, and one of the things that will actually cause a lot of overcooking of something like a ribeye is also a solution if you do it to the extreme, and that is going too thin. So you're trying to get this nice char, but then you're overcooking, right, because you're staying there so long. So I don't really – I can't comment on your cooking directly because you didn't tell me how you're doing this. This is on a grill – uh, I guarantee it's not sous vide. Uh, is it a frying pan? Like, what are you doing with this piece of meat? Like, that's that's that that would be critical for me to know. Now, on management, it, it is important. It's very important. Like when when people say it's grass-fed meat, and you've got a, a rancher that just basically has a giant ranch, and he just lets his cows run around all the time and eat whatever they want. It might be okay, but you're never going to get the quality you're going to get from some of the practices, managed rotational grazing. Remember I said cows don't eat grain in the wild. What cows want, the ice cream of, of, of the grass, is what you would call the teenager. Okay, you the teenager of the grass. You want grass that is like half-grown. You don't want a little bit stubby grass because then they're going to overgraze. And it's really not developed 
to the point where they really desire it yet either. And you don't want mature grass with seed heads on it. They'll only eat that if they're freaking starving. Think about like, it's not the same thing, but think about it this way. Think about you have lettuce growing in the garden and you let it bolt and it puts a seed head on and you don't really want to eat it anymore. Or cilantro when it goes and puts coriander seed on, right? Because cilantro, coriander is the same plant. When it goes into that, that bolted phase and the, te the texture and flavor of the plant, the leaf matter itself changes, it's kind of like that. So they don't want to eat adult grass, and they don't want to eat baby grass. They want to eat teenage grass. And the only way you can make sure that that's the main thing they're eating all the time is to rotationally graze and move them around. So that's important. The other thing he said doesn't have as much marbling. It is normal for grass-fed beef to have less fat. It's not normal if it's managed properly for it to have so much less fat that it's heavily noticeable, especially in a cut like a ribeye. So you may have the people in your area are taking a shortcut, and instead of really finishing their beef out, what they're doing is they're actually maybe slaughtering younger than they should. About the time that animal would go to the CAFO for six to eight weeks of misery, they're processing it. That could be going, but there's no way for me to know that. Um, what I'm going to focus on is ways you can take this meat until you figure something else out and get a more tender steak. It just so happened that this question came up right as I was about to run an item of the day that I run on my website, which is just a simple product. It's, it's a salt. It's made by a company called Redmond. And it's Redmond Real Salt. And it is uh, it's kind of a multicolored salt. It's an all-natural salt. It's an ancient sea salt. All salt is ancient sea salt. That's where salt deposits come from, just so you know. And if you want to read the write-up I have on that product, there's a link in the notes here in this video. So you can, and you can learn about the overhyped health benefits of this. But it's a great tasting salt. And But what I, what I really fell in love with it is when I used it to dry brine pork. And I also used it to dry brine steaks and things like that as well. Dry brine is simply where we fairly heavily salt, not cake, but we fairly heavily salt meat. And then we put it in the refrigerator for a day or two, maybe three at the most, and then we cook it. And that breaks down the muscle tissues a great deal. It also enhances flavor, and it just makes you get a much better sear on your steak. And I would say my first step with these steaks would be to dry brine them. And uh, watch the video on this. If you don't really have time to dry brine, another technique that involves salt is called salted steak. And it's generally done on really tough pieces of steak, um, things that are maybe from the upper leg muscle or some heavier work that are generally not used as steaks, but can be cut into steak-like cuts, but generally make a very tough steak. And so a salted steak is simply, you literally cake salt. I mean, like where it's covered in salt. And you leave it there for one hour per inch of thickness. That's how that's it's a hard cut formula. There's a video by a dude that explains it and shows it perfectly so you can see it. That's in my notes below that you can check out. And then you wash the meat clean of that salt and you cook it. I personally prefer dry brining, but the salted method works as well. For that, since you use so much salt, I would use cheap culture salt. I wouldn't use the Redmond salt to do that with. Though it would be an interesting experiment, I just think it would be expensive, and you want a more coarse salt because it'll wash cleaner. You're not trying to make the meat taste salty here. Now, if you left it the way we're talking about here, it's going to be very salty. It's going to literally become like a completely preserved piece of meat that's going to have to be soaked if you were to leave it. But one hour 
per inch of thickness. So if you had a half-inch steak, 30 minutes. The beauty of this method is it's much quicker than the dry brining method, and it will work very well as well. The next one, I'm about to have people like start tweaking out and freaking out and screaming that everybody's going to die, and you need to shut up and you need to stop because all of the malicious information about this product is total bullshit. MSG. Um, you can use MSG on steaks. It gives an amazing kind of umami flavor to it, and it will tenderize uh, the steak exceptionally well. And the people that freak out, oh, my God, then you better not eat seaweed because that's what it's derived from. Check out Google Foods. He did a dry age experiment where basically he took seaweed <laughs> and he, he wrapped a whole cut in seaweed Dry aged it for 30 days, brought it out, trimmed it, and then made steaks, and it was fantastic. And it had that same characteristics of when you use MSG. So I have my favorite brand of MSG, very cost-effective, high-quality. Link in the video notes uh, below this video, and you can use that. And that will definitely tenderize your meat. The next one I'm going to give you, you have to be very careful with this. Because if you leave it too long, it will turn the toughest piece of steak into disgusting mush. And it's pineapple. And I mentioned Google Foods already. He has an experiment where he does a salted steak, a mechanically tenderized steak, and a pineapple steak. And they, they like the pineapple steak out of all the ways they tenderize this steak the best. And I love Google Foods. It's a great challenge to subscribe. So I'm going to say something, though. In spite of the fact that they liked it, if you're going to use pineapple juice or uh, ground-up pineapple, either one, on your steak, I do not recommend doing what they did. They left it for one full hour. To me, personally, the texture is too soft, and you'll see that in their video. I'm going to tell you that you can, if you're going to use pineapple juice or uh, mashed up pineapple to tenderize steak, I would start with about 15 minutes at the most prior to cooking, and of course, really get that steak well dried off. Anytime you're going to cook a steak, you want Paper towel, tea towel, something you want that is, is the exterior is bone dry as possible. You can't get a sear when you're boiling. And it doesn't matter if the water is in the pan or coming out of the steak. If you have a water layer between the meat and the heat, you do not get mallard reaction. You do not get sear. So make sure it's dry. But pineapple works exceedingly well. There are meat tenderizers like the ones made by Accent. Uh, Ascent, Accent, whatever it is. I won't use that crab. I'd rather use natural pineapple. And I think they actually get theirs for, derived from papaya, but it's the same enzyme that's in pineapple juice that causes this tenderizing. Pineapple juice is a great tenderizer. It doesn't really impart any flavor to the meat unless you leave it on there when you cook it or make a sauce out of it. But you've got you to gotta limit the time frame. The next would be me mechanical tenderizing. And I have a link. It's the one Google recommends, and I agree it's probably the best one out there. It's made by Jacquard. It's not just, you know, poke holes in the meat, basically. The Jacquard one isn't just little round holes. They're more like small blades. And, yes, you can take a knife, and you can, if you were going to rely on this method, and the only reason I think somebody would rely on this method is they're allergic to pineapple, and they have an aversion to anything with the word sodium in it, and they're not going to use it, which means your meat's going to be bland anyway. But... Um, It works. It doesn't work as good as MSG, and it doesn't work as good as salting, and it doesn't work uh, as good as a pineapple, but it does work. Another method, and this, I would not do this to a ribeye. I'm just going to say that. But with cuts that are, you know, again, you can do steak-like things with them, but they're really not generally sold as steaks. You know, 
uh, round or, or, or top round or things like that. The best way to do those is to cut them like double the thickness you want to cook them at and you want them thin. This is where we're going to break the rules and pound them. And I thought about giving you a meat pounding hammer thingy in the notes, and I'm not going to because I'm going to tell you what I do. I go get my rubber mallet out of my shop. I put the meat inside a heavy-duty zip-top bag, and then I put the mallet back outside. It doesn't even get meat on it, and the meat never touches it because it's inside the bag. You can use a heavy glass to do this. You can use a rolling pin. Like I'm not going to go out and buy a meat hammer I'm sorry, I just think that is a waste of money, and it is another thing taking up space in my drawer, so I advise against it. If you want one, you want the flat ones, not the pointy ones. The pointy ones, usually they have pointy on one side, flat on the other. The pointy ones are for making like cube steak and all. If you're going to take this approach, this is the meat that you want to pound out. A little MSG on it would be good, I'm just saying, uh, or at least a little salt and pepper. And then you want to cook that hot and fast. I know I just said that if you cook meat longer and well done, it will be tough. Not if it's pounded thin and cooked almost instantly through. So you people that like um, fully cooked, well done, ruined, destroyed, horrific things done to your meat, that is a good way to go. And it's a way that I would do it myself, even though I prefer a rare steak, because these cuts of meat are actually very flavorful And I'd rather grill them over high heat and get that char on them and maybe give them a little basting with a little teriyaki or something like that uh, than put them into a stew pot. I'm not big on stew pots and pot roast and stuff like that. I'll eat it once in a while, but I really prefer my meat more caveman-like. So take it and thin it out and do that. I defy you to make a tough steak if you put it in, you know, especially in like a New York strip or a top sirloin or a ribeye, I don't care what it comes from. I don't care if it comes from a freaking goat, an old goat. If you sous vide it for two hours, that's like 135 degrees. So sous vide would be another method that you could use that I think everybody that loves steak should be using now and again anyway. The sous vide is a multitasker. We'll talk about that in another episode someday, I'm sure. But definitely I would look at sous vide. Um, and that's, that's kind of it. And I would say this for the final thing with the sous vide. If you insist on eating steak well done, I know of one way to make steak well done, consistently well done, and not have it be dry and not have it be tough. Okay? And I, I, I hesitate to even say this because I hate doing it. I've gotten my wife to at least eat it a little pink because I just... It's so wrong to overcook beef. It's like a sin against the cow that died so that you could have its nutrients. But... If you insist, cook it at a sane temperature. And if you're doing this, anyway, you can cook it all the way down like 130. Calm down. It's not going to be red when we're done with it. For your two-hour period, okay? Then jack it up to 150, if that's what you insist upon. Like, whatever doneness you need done. Jack it up to that point, and then let the sous vide come up to temperature. When it hits the temperature you're looking for, then start a timer for 15 minutes. It will finish internally to that temperature. It will take the red out, but it won't sit in, because if you put it at 150 
and cook it for two hours, it will cook so much of the juice out of the steak, even with sous vide, that even though it will seem moist, it will also seem dry. If you only finish it at the higher temperature, guess what? It will keep most of the juice in the steak. Now, here's the beauty of this method. Let's say you live in a household that's divided. One group in the household likes to destroy meat and ruin it and sin against it, and the other side likes to eat it the way it's designed to be eaten. You know, like beautiful, medium, rare to rare. Like that's where beef is supposed to be. These cuts, anyway, we're talking about. What you do then, you should put everybody's steaks in. You label them somehow, mark them somehow, divide them somehow. And then when you get to your two-hour cook limit, you take all the same people's meat out of the cooker, Then you turn it up, you finish it, and then let them all come down to room temperature. Dry them fully and sear them just long enough to sear the outside. And then laugh at your 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 fellow members of your household as they eat their overcooked steak while you your beautiful, delicious, rare steak. I will say this, though. When I do that, my wife never finishes her steak. It's still delicious. It's not as good as mine, but I can eat it. And it's the only way I've ever been able to eat well-done meat. So I hope this helps. Check out the resources. Definitely check out Guga's channel. He'll make you a better cook. He's one of my favorite YouTube personalities. I wish I could get him over here on Odyssey, but, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, again, I'll pass this on to Darby. And if you have your favorite methods of tenderizing steak, let us know. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say you're either overcooking it. These are my two most likely problems for the person asking. Me. You're overcooking it. Whoever's processing it is processing it too quickly without giving it adequate hang time. That is... Those are two things that are no bueno. Or you just have your people in your area have really bad management practices. I hope that helps, and we'll come back tomorrow with something totally different. Well, hello there, guys and gals in Airwebs land. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 119. Uh, real quick, just out of the gate, uh, not really related to this episode, but, man, Monday I did an episode, that would have been episode 117, and if you want to see it on YouTube, you now can't, because the YouTube police took it down. The irony is delicious. Uh, that video, the main point of that video is the real conspiracy theorists of the world are the billions of people out there who believe that big tech, big corporations, mega banks, big pharma... Um, all the, and, and, and the mainstream media, uh, and six companies owning all the media in the world of, of, that's of any real power, uh, that all of those entities together having all this power to silence people and to structure the narrative don't, and you can trust the information. So that video, big tech censored. Thank you. Hey, guys, out there in uh, YouTube land, Google land, right? You guys have censored that video. I am not being facetious here. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for censoring that video. Thank, I, I swear to God, uh, Sergey, etc., at all at Google, whoever made the decision to pull that lever, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, and again, I'm not being, thank you so much. Thank you so much for shutting that video off on YouTube. It lives forever on the blockchain over at Odyssey. I'll put a link to it in this video. Will you shut this video down because I do that? You can if you want to. It's okay. I'll have a strike then. I know. I'll get another strike. Ooh, will you ban me? I don't care. I don't care. But you have just proven everything I said in that video by banning it. Everything I said in that video by banning it. They said it was misinformation. 
They said, do you want to appeal? I said, yes, please give me an example of any misinformation in this video. I have yet to receive a comment from Big Google YouTube. Anyway, what are we talking about today? Quitting. Winners never quit. Never quit. Never quit. Quitting's not an option. I think that's shitty advice without proper context. So let's start out with where never quit really makes sense and, you know, quitters never win, etc. Well, quitters never win at the thing they quit doing. I mean, that's, that's true. That, that, I'll give you that. It was a big part of the ethos of my military training. Don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. And when you're on an obstacle course and you're testing yourself, it, it makes a lot of sense not to quit. Um, when you've been given a mission, not quitting until the mission is either completed or you're dead in that context, okay, yeah. There's a lot of places where not quitting is good advice. Never's where I have a problem. Never without the context of never quit, let's say, when it matters. Never quit when life's on the line. Never quit when you're trying to make a commitment that you can still make. Right? Never quit a mission before it's complete, etc. However, even that's bad advice. And, and, and you have to understand that this whole never quit that's taught to you even in the military is only first-level training. There's definitely times when you quit. That's why missions have contingencies. When you enact the contingency, you have quit the primary mission because it's blown. So if your mission was to take this building and then you find out it was like wire with frickin' explosives, you don't go in. You move to your contingency. You have a fallback plan. We need these in life too. But it doesn't always have to be so high stakes. It can be even higher stakes, and it can be far lower stakes. Here's some examples. Well, first I want to start off with I interviewed this dude years ago. I mean years ago. I, I can't remember exactly when, but it was a long, long time back. And the subject was unschooling and homeschooling. And this guy was a very successful small farmer, paid all his bills, owned his land, owned his house. Uh, it was also an author. And for the life of me, I just can't remember his name either because it was probably five to seven years back um, that long ago. So with you know, 3,000 podcasts now, it's, it's kind of hard to not to know everything and remember it. But I do remember that I gave him a great big setup, slow pitch softball. At the beginning of that interview, I said, because he quit high school, like his parents had him in high school, and as soon as he was old enough to quit in his state at the time, he dropped out. And he, he didn't even get a GED. He didn't care. He, he knew what he wanted to do. He became a lifelong learner, and he started building his farm and, and everything. And uh, I said, haven't you ever heard but never quit? And his response was, I'm all for quitting things that are unnecessary in my life and make me miserable. So I had determined by that point that I didn't need to keep doing this, and it was making me miserable, so I quit. Oh, I love that. So here's some examples of people using the phrase, never quit, when it's really a bad idea. So some guy forces his kid to play a sport, let's say t-ball. The kid doesn't have any interest in He doesn't want anything to do with it. But since he's a little kid, he's like, you know, seven years old or six years old, and he's out in the field sticking dirt in his glove, which I've seen done. Um, he he kind of goes along for a while with it, but he really hates it. He just hates it. And uh, he tells his dad, you know, like halfway through the season, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to quit. He's six years old. He should be doing things that make him freaking happy, 
really should. And his dad says, you know what? It's like the Smith family. Smith's never quit. You never quit. Your team's counting on you, and your coach is counting on you. Let me tell you something, dude. The Sheboyganville freaking Frogs t-ball team is not important to the world, and your kid that hates the sport and sucks at it is not important to the team. That's pretty minor, but that's the kind of shit I see all, and hear of all the time. It's nonsense. You know what? You And what always happens is that's a guy or a woman, etc., trying to live vicariously through their kid. Your kid's a kid once. This never quit shit when it comes to something like that. Nonsense. There's other ways to teach that lesson where things actually matter. Like, kid wants to do a thing and hits the first stumbling back and wants to quit. No, we're going to work through that together. right? But not making a kid do something they don't want to do. A little bit higher stakes. Guy starts a business. Turns out his business model is totally flawed. Totally flawed. Where he's actually in a business where the more success he has, the more broke he's going to go faster. And he, he does the math, he does the spreadsheet analysis that he should have done in the first place when he launched the business, but he didn't. And it turns out, there's no way to fix this business. But he says, oh, never quit. Stupid, stupid, stupid. The minute you figure out that a business can't be fixed and will only lose money no matter what you do is the second you quit. You shut down the operation. You get rid of it. Too much invested, man. That's, <laughs> that's a sunken cost fallacy. It's a way to lose more money. It's throwing good money after bad. You stop doing that shit. Maybe you even retool and open a business in the same industry, but you shut down the one that is doomed to fail instantly. Instantly. Because the only thing you get is deeper in the hole. You want a really big grand scheme? So let's say some country, I don't know, let's call them uh, the land of dumbasses that think they're free, decides we're going to go to another country 3,000 miles away where we have no real vested interest and insert thousands of our troops and billions of our dollars to try to fix it. And 20 years later, the place is still a shit show. And somebody says, hey, maybe we should stop doing this. And cries screech out everywhere about how the whole world will fall apart if we stop giving blood and treasure to a place that's a complete shit show, that we have no real vested interest in, that's not been, you know, well run and organized and safe and a good place for the world in a hundred years or more. And by the way, it's only gotten worse every time we've touched it and we're still touching it. But when we say stop touching it, people say some stupid shit like, then all of the men who's already lost their lives in there will have been given in vain. So what you want is more people to go die there because we never quit. You see how this can go from a little bitty thing all the way up to like this geopolitical pain in the ass that, that costs thousands or even hundreds of thousands of lives, billions of dollars, because we don't quit? And in that case, the people in power don't really care what you think. They just they just want to rah-rah you so that you think something good's happening, right? Like They just want to like have a little bit of popular support with it. So they'll make you hate the only guy that ever wanted to freaking end the damn war, regardless of his other flaws, because we never quit. Never quit's terrible advice. It's awful advice. That's why it works. So I started off this week with a show about mental programming, and what I'm telling you today is never quit is another form of mental programming. Never quit. Do you know how many atrocities can be justified? How many failed policies can be justified? How much destruction of property and lives and money can be justified utilizing the philosophy of we'll never quit? And then one of you dumbasses out there 
who's like pseudo military, right? Never actually served in the military or anything, but like in your head, you would have been a Navy SEAL man, but they just didn't understand or some stupid shit like that. Or I almost joined the military, so you're, you know, like one of you people are going to tell me, I just don't get what don't quit means or never quit means. I totally get what never quit means. I totally understand the point where you put your head down, right? You put your head down and your butt up and you just work until you get the thing done. If you bleed a little bit, you bleed a little bit. If you sweat, you sweat. If you go without, you go without. If you have to eat ramen noodles for freaking six months to make it work, you do it. But only because it's going to lead you where you want to be or where you need to be or because it's going to truly save somebody else's life because it's going to enrich your life, or because you have made a commitment and you need to see the commitment through. Okay? And the commitment is actually, like, important. That's it. That's when you never quit makes sense. Most of the time, when it's thrown around, it's nothing but a catchphrase. It might even not even be used as never quit, but the concept is used to keep us engaged in foreign conflicts we don't need to be engaged in. Just as one simple example... You might as well say something, you know, freedom isn't free. That's another, like, I mean, good Lord, the ability to control an entire society with, with, with a half a dozen catchphrases per side of the dichotomy is unbelievable, yet totally believable. Because all you got to do is look out your window and see it. So next time you hear somebody say never quit, realize that you can tell the truth and a lie in a single phrase. Never quit. It's incomplete. It's insufficient to stand on its own. It must come with context. It must come with logical, thoughtful analysis. Just to make it blunt for you right here at the end. You put your hand on a stove burner. You smell the stink of burning flesh. You feel the searing pain of your hand burning, rapidly progressing from first to second to third degree burns. If you continue to do this, very soon you will not be able to remove your hand because it will literally sear itself onto the stove burner. When should you quit doing it? If I need to say more than that, you'll never understand this one anyway. But one more time, when we're going back to episode, what was it, 117 on the Grand Conspiracy And Google taking it down. Thank you so much. And guys, I'll be back tomorrow with another one. Maybe we'll talk about crypto tomorrow. We'll see. Well, hi there, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 120. I promised yesterday, or at least alluded yesterday, that we might talk about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, all that good jazz yesterday. And uh, we're going to. I'm going to make good on that. Again, not a promise, but a, uh, a foreshadowing. So what I want to talk to you about today is the fact that I believe the Bitcoin dominoes are falling. This is a term that I've been using for a while. And when El Salvador crossed over the Rubicon and said, we are going to recognize Bitcoin as legal tender, I said at that point, it was, this is about 15 days ago, I guess, that this is way bigger news than you think it is. Because you think of El Salvador, and probably the first things that come to your mind are quite negative. You think of like MS-13 gangs and all, and that is where they come from. And you know, they're far more active in like Southern California right now than they are in places like you know, El Salvador, where they come from. Um, El Salvador, in many areas, is probably safer than many areas of the United States right now because their new president like has done a big smackdown on this. And 
is basically using his military as law enforcement and said, you know, we're not going to tolerate this shit anymore. I want my nation to be safe for my people. And um, adopting Bitcoin is part of that because, as, I, as I've said before, El Salvador official currency is the United States dollar. I also mentioned Panama. I said, Pan I said, you know, Costa Rica and Panama are looking at this, and Panama is going to do this. And this is also big news because the Panamanians use the U.S. dollar. On paper, they say they use the Balboa, but having lived in Panama for two years, I never saw a paper Balboa. And if, when I tried to find one, I found out they do exist. They look an awful lot like U.S. dollar bills, They're very old, and they come from the time of like things like silver certificates. There's no modern printing of Panamanian money. If you go to Panama right now, and you go anywhere, and you buy or sell or trade anything, the only Balboas you'll see will be quarter Balboa coins. And so you have two nations using the dollar, and I said that Panama would go next. Well, in the 15 days since we first started talking about this, here's all the things that have happened in those 15 days. Um, El Salvador is now trying to figure out how to start paying government salaries in Bitcoin. This was initially reported as they're going to, and then kind of their head bureaucrat in charge of doing that said, hey, whoa, 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 this is beyond my purview. I can't just do this uh, wholesale. But, yeah, we want to do this, but we got other shit to take care of. But, yeah, the intent is there. So that if you, you know, anything from a street sweeper to a senator, you would receive your salary in Bitcoin in El Salvador. That's going to happen. It's going to take longer than I think people realize. Okay, but it's going to happen. However, with this new law passed, I would point out there's nothing that prevents a Panama, or I'm sorry, an El Salvadoran citizen who is employed by its government from immediately converting its, you know, his dollars into Bitcoin with no tax consequences ever. So it's de facto there already. It's just a matter of an administrative process to do remittance to your employees directly in Bitcoin. And so that's going to happen, and again, it's de facto already there. Remember I said Panama will do this? Okay, this is in 15 days. Panama is going to send a Bitcoin bill to their Congress in July. Not as thinking about it, not might do it, is going to send the bill to their Congress in July. And I'm going to tell you, Spirko Damas Powers, it is going to pass. And I'm going to pause here for a second during this one and say, you're going to hear some things that I think is like, Jack, trusting governments now? I am not trusting governments. I am basing my prognostications on this, on the simple fact that people do what is in their best interest, and hence entities made up of humans do what is in the best interest of the humans that make up the entities. Self-interest. And I'm going to tell you that it is not in the self-interest of the people that run these small nations, nor the citizens they represent, to continue to let the U.S. government and the central banks of the world tell them how to run their economies. But it is in their own best interest, and as politicians who want to get reelected, it will be a very popular decision to go down the road that I'm going to talk about today. And it gets much bigger, much faster than you realize. So, not only is Panama going to do this in July, um, Paraguay is looking to adopt Bitcoin with a bill being drafted to make it happen. Paraguay. What? <laughs> What? Where, where did this come from? It, it actually happened right about the time that El Salvador did it. And it's kind of been there, but Paraguay is just not a country people pay attention to. But remember what I said. Countries of this type, smaller countries with um, a history of being interfered with by U.S. policy within Central and South America would begin once one did it 
Everybody's going to look at it, and a significant number are going to do it. And each time somebody else does it, it's like a it's like a multiplier. One does it, that creates two that do it, which will create four that do it, and so on down the line until you get to a point of real resistance. Some nation that is so beholden to the United States uh, or other large national powers that do not wish for this to happen might be able to put the brakes on it. And we'll talk about that in a second, one place where I think it's sort of kind of going to happen, at least initially. The bigger news to me, and literally no one is talking about this that I've heard yet, um, the C-A-B-E-I, okay, which is a, a shorthand for the Central American Bank for Economic Integration, is made up of 15 member countries, and they have committed to help El Salvador with the implementation of Bitcoin as legal tender. What? What? <laughs> are you are you do, you do you get that? This is a 15 nation um, alliance of their banking systems saying you want to do this, we'll cooperate. Not necessarily they're going to do a lot to help. We'll cooperate. That's really what this statement is from from this institution. We'll cooperate with it. We won't interfere. We won't cause any problems here. If you want to do this, that's okay. And maybe some of our members that are more friendly to the idea will actively help. And the rest of the members are just like, well, okay, you can do what you want. Fifteen members of something that means the Central American Bank for Economic Integration. What 15 countries would you think would be in, there's not 15 countries in Central America. So there may be some South American countries in there. Here's the member uh, banks national banks that are members of the C-A-B-E-I. They are Guatemala, El Salvador, no, no surprises yet, Honduras, Honduras, right? Um, Nicaragua, hmm, Nicaragua. Expect that to happen pretty quick. Costa Rica, gee, where have we heard that before? These are all Central American countries, so that makes sense, right? Panama, Dominican Republic, Island out here in the Dominican Republic. Huh. Belize, okay, Central America. Mexico. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Mexico is a major nation because they are so dependent upon U.S. interest at this point, etc. I don't think people realize the tremendous amount of wealth in Mexico. Mexico is not a poor country. It's a country with a lot of poor people, well, much like the United States. But anyway, um, but okay, we're still in this. This kind of all jives. Like we got a Caribbean nation in there, but it's still kind of a um, Taiwan. What? Um, Argentina, Argentina, right? Okay. Uh, Colombia, well, okay. Spain, Spain. Cuba, Korea, as in the southern variety. Wait, what? Taiwan, Spain, Korea? What are they doing here? Why are they part of this? Well, you know, even nations that we have really friendly relationships like South Korea and Taiwan still do what? They act in their own best self-interest. And they know that the United States for, not recently, but for decades, has been destroying the value of the dollar that is, it, it acts as the world currency. And they know these developing nations have tremendous potential. And maybe they will, maybe they won't realize it, but it's there. So this is not a new thing, this, this alliance, this 15-nation alliance, but it's, uh, it's grown some recently. Um, 
you got to start thinking about what what you got here. What's the uh, what's the gross domestic product of all these 15 nations combined? What if these 15 nations all eventually decide this seems like a good idea one way or another? And and, and maybe Taiwan is not going to so middle finger the U.S. government in its face that, hey, we're going to do this because they're kind of worried about that, that big giant country with nuclear weapons to their north in China. But what if like the 15-member the, the alliance just all says, you know what we should all do? Because this is more their banking system than the government itself, which there's an independence there. Um, we should all put 5% of our reserves into Bitcoin. Just so if nothing else, maybe we use that to do business with each other as part of this alliance that we freely formed in this free association. What if 10 of them do it? What does that do to the price of Bitcoin? There's not enough Bitcoin in circulation to do this without it causing at least a 10 to 15-fold increase in the price. You can do the math for yourself and figure it out. Domino falls, domino falls, domino falls. There's something else going on here. And I'm going to start hearing people that all of a sudden are going to become constitutional scholars when they hear this. There is the potential for states within the United States to do things very important, you hear the next word, like this, right? Like versus same as. Those are not, they're not the same. Like, akin to, ways to do this. And what people say, the states can't do anything with money other than use silver and gold, man. Well, first of all, they don't do that now. They use the federal dollar, which is not backed by silver or gold. You have to understand the, the purpose of the constitutional component that people cite with the silver and gold thing was the federal government was afraid that a state like, oh, I don't know, South Carolina could go out and create its own money and incur massive debts and then attempt to repay those debts with that money, which would then be defunct and then no longer valid. And then the federal government, the rest of the states would be left having to bail out South Carolina. You know, since we stopped doing things the way that it was originally set up, we've been bailing cities and states and shit out like crazy. That's exactly why it was set up that way. It doesn't matter that it shouldn't be that way. You can scream and yell and shout and go, la, 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 and say, it's unconstitutional. There's law and there's de facto law. A lot of what people, a lot of how people are controlled in our country today, we won't go into today, but it is through de facto law. A lot of how the medical uh, industry is controlled today, and you think it's government regulations, a lot of it is de facto law. It is not government. It is de facto private law. So you could have de facto private law, and you could have de facto government law. And what I mean by de facto government law is, yeah, it's, we can all look at it and go, this is totally unconstitutional, but they have the means, the ability, and the will to enforce it, and they will do it. So when you say something's unconstitutional, I'm like, well, 90% of what affects your life every day, as far as your government is concerned, is also unconstitutional. So the fact that what I'm going to say could be unconstitutional doesn't mean it can't be done. I also, I don't want to go deep into it today, but I've kind of looked at this, and there are loopholes, and I'm sure people smarter than me that want to exploit them at the state level will figure them out. Wyoming already has some incredible basically giant middle finger to the Fed in your face laws, including things that are basically free zones within Wyoming. Like business conducted in here is not subject to capital gains tax at the federal level. That hasn't been tested highly yet, and it doesn't only apply to Bitcoin. So they have these zones, and they also have a blockchain 
a crypto-friendly environment. That's one way that could be advanced. There are states within the United States that are starting to really be pissed off at the federal government. And the federal government seems to be doing everything it can to piss them off even further. It is highly likely that you may begin to see within states within the United States some sort of blockchain or Bitcoin consortium where they all come up with kind of a standardized way that they're going to be friendly to blockchain and Bitcoin and stand up to the states. There's also nothing that prevents the state of Texas or the state of Florida or the state of South Dakota or Wyoming from buying Bitcoin. What the, what the Constitution limits is they can't force someone to take payment for debt from a currency that they create. That's, what it, that's, that's a strict reading. They can do what they want, but they can't make somebody take it. But if that person is... To have a violation of contract law, you have to have a complaint. If you and I have a contract and, and it says, I must pay you dollars, and that's what the contract clearly says, and it comes settlement time for the contract. And I say, I have a proposal. I know by contract I am required to pay you in dollars. Will you take Ethereum? And you say, sure, I'll take Ethereum. Will you sign this that says you've been paid in Ethereum and that you're okay with it? This will be an amendment to the contract. Okay. You will. Okay. I pay you in Ethereum. We're done. We're finished. We have no problems. You got paid. I got whatever you tendered to me. We're happy. There's nothing that prevents that. What happens if a state the size of Texas, with 29 million people in it, an incredible tax base, in a booming economy, decides we're going to put, because you know Texas holds gold reserves. Texas holds reserves outside of the dollar. Texas can hold commodity reserves. Texas, within its retirement accounts for its employees, holds all sorts of assets. Follow me? What if they decide, you know what, not only do we want to be friendly to blockchain, but we just want to kind of signal how friendly we are, and we're just going to create some way that our employees in their retirement accounts can opt to have some portion of their retirement in Bitcoin. And Wyoming goes, hmm, we have a lot less people, but that is a pretty good idea. And like old man DeSantos out there in Florida goes, hey, 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 don't leave the orange producing, you know, state out of this. Like, hey, we got citrus and we got Bitcoin. I'm not so sure on this second part, but on the first part of these nations. Oh, by the way, it's not just Central America and South America. Um, it looks like we're going to have this start to catch fire in Africa. Again, I don't trust African governments. I trust individuals to do what's in their best interest. The two nations that are most close to doing something right now are Tonga and Tanzania. Very small nations with very little influence and very little control on how the rest of the world treats them. Monetary sovereignty is the first step in true sovereignty for a nation state. It is in their best interest to do this. Now, I honestly believe if one nation tries to do this all by itself, that somehow the United States government and the British government and the European governments will determine there's a real big giant terrorist threat in this nation you never heard of and find a reason to bomb the living shit out of it. But if you got Brazil, that's a little bit more complicated, isn't it? Right? I mean, Brazil's part of this consortium. And if you've got a couple African nations, like, there's a limit to what we can do in spreading ourselves out, especially since we seem addicted to remaining 
involved in the Middle Eastern shitholes that we continue to make worse. And if you start having friendly nations, see, this is where the friendly nations jump on board. Like, you might say, well, you know, the U.S. has Taiwan over a barrel. Taiwan can't do this, because then the U.S. would turn to Taiwan and go, you're on your own. We can't afford to let Taiwan be on its own. We don't protect Taiwan because we care about Taiwan. We, can't, we Again, we act in our own self-interest, and the people that run our government is in their self-interest to maintain significant control of the South China Sea, and we do that through our relationship with Taiwan. We need them more than they need us. I know it's like crazy because, well, China could just take over. Yes, and that would suck for Taiwan, but that's not why we care. That's not why we care. We care because it is an incredibly strategic place to have friendly relations with, both economically and geopolitically, and from a military standpoint. You feel me? So once there's enough going on, if you have like a South Korea is incredibly friendly to cryptocurrency. There's a lot of shit the U.S. government has told South Korea they need to be doing with cryptocurrency, and they're like, yeah, no, here. There's a lot of things they've done that I'm not exactly thrilled with, but overall, they have told the U.S. and our you know, financial controllers several times to go shove it up their ass. So this is what's going to happen. This is going to look incredibly slow motion as it's occurring. Incredibly slow motion. And then, all of a sudden, it's going to look like an avalanche overnight as there's a significant portion of nations in the world... And then republics within nation states like the United States and even maybe like cantons in Switzerland, etc., that do this independently in their own version based on the restrictions their government can place on them or that they're willing to obey. Because, again, if the Constitution says that it can't be done, does not mean it can't be done. How many, how many things does the Constitution say your government can't do to you that your government does to you at will? So just because it says you can't do it, it always comes down to can you enforce what you say or are you willing to or is the person or the entity standing up to you capable of holding off your force? And it will be almost overnight. And people go, how did this happen? Think of how the Soviet Union fell. There was all this shit going on. But anybody that said, hey, um, uh, some real shit's about to go down. Like, as I remember when this happened, like, and there were people, like, the outliers coming on the news going, like, the whole thing's about to fall apart. All these member republics are fixing to become independent nations. And people laughed at them. People scoffed at them. It'll never happen. And then, that fast. If you looked at the thumbnail of this video, if you're watching the video version, or if you see the graphic that went with the episode published on the website, there's a quote by Ernest Hemingway. Totally different, but the same, man. How did we go bankrupt? Two ways. Slowly and then all of the sudden. The world is about to change from an economic standpoint in ways that I don't have any idea what it's actually going to look like. I just know that it's coming and I know that it's going to revolve around blockchain and specifically Bitcoin. Now, why Bitcoin? Because there's other ones that are faster, cheaper, whatever, they're better. No. Bitcoin is the one because it has first mover advantage and greatest underlying value. And because of the greatest underlying value, it has the most people actively engaged in mining and verifying transactions in the blockchain, which makes it the most secure network ever built. Didn't say a word about privacy, so don't go twerking off about that. It is the most secure place to store a digital asset 
with known parameters that humans have created ever in the history of humanity, and knocking it off now is akin to trying to knock off Google and Facebook and Twitter from the tech sector simultaneously. In fact, I would say that's easier and more likely than knocking off Bitcoin. And that's why these nations will use it. And then other assets will play a role, though 99% of them will go away and be worthless. There will be others that play a role in this, and speculation has its value. But in the end, it is the security of this network and the potential for these nations, as I talked about earlier, like geothermal in El Salvador, right? How about solar and wind in Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia could, could produce more solar and wind energy than any other region on the planet right now if they wanted to. You know why they don't do it? They have no use for it. What if they had a use for it? Is Oil becomes worth less and less over time. Oil is a draining, a draining commodity. I know some people think we'll never get off oil. It's going to be a long time, but it is, it is like this. It is a constant downward. Well, oil's up. It's not up in relation to currencies of the world. Not much. It is right now, but it won't stay there. If you look at the, the, like the, the, the 10 year moving average, it is a declining asset. It's all they have. What if there was a way that they could have something else? I mean, not a lot of research. You see how this works? Anyway, it's up to you guys to figure out what you want to do, but I'm just going to say if you don't have something in the kitty here, you, you probably should. With that, we've wrapped up another week of Miyagi Mornings. I'll be back next week with more. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.